You're listening to Framework, where we dig into the research, planning, and building that goes into bringing products to market. I'm Rob Hayes. And I'm Tom Creighton. And today we're talking with Emily Noyan, a product manager working at Wattpad, about how her team built a revenue model that made sense for their product, TAP. Emily, can you give us a short intro about yourself and what TAP is for those who aren't familiar? TAP is a product developed by Wattpad. And if those of you who don't know what Wattpad is, Wattpad is a global entertainment company and platform and community with over 65 million readers and writers. And it helps people discover and share stories from romance, science fiction, everything in between. We developed TAP kind of in the same lines of how Wattpad came to be. Our founder felt like storytelling needed to be disrupted. It was kind of back in the day where Nokia phones were the big thing before iPhones. And right now everyone has mobile phones. And I think you know, storytelling needs to evolve. I mean, the last time storytelling has evolved was since mobile gaming and that kind of stuff. Tap delivers gripping edge of the seat stories that unravels through texts, FaceTime calls, live streams, phone calls, and a lot more other features. Um, and it makes you just feel like you're part of the story. So since launching, you know, it's we've only launched last year. <laughs> you know, since then grown to about 5 million downloads and we have over 300,000 stories available. Awesome. So you're about a year into existence with TAP. When, when in the, in the life cycle in that year, did figuring out your revenue model become a big priority for your team? When we developed TAP, it was a very, you know, strategic and conscious choice to play in the interactive storytelling market. And it was a bit different than Wattpad. Wattpad is a free platform moving into the paid space. We, on tap, we wanted to, from the get-go, design a revenue model from day one. So there wasn't really any question. And there was a lot of already market validation for paid interactive stories. So if you look in the mobile gaming market, if you look in video games, there you know, all of that is paid. So we kind of wanted to, from day one, start with some sort of revenue model. So it's a little bit different. We still wanted to get to product market fit, but we wanted to make sure that that was ingrained in the product from day one. And that was a very conscious decision and very different from what we've done before. So, you know, to answer that question, it's it wasn't really a question for us. It was more like mm -hmm. how we wanted to do it and how we wanted to make sure that it was the best experience for our users. So you've been thinking about this even before you brought anything into market. Yeah, exactly. So you spoke about uh, gaming as, as an example of, yeah. of like a paid service. Were there other signals um, within the space uh, that, that Wattpad already works in or other similar products or, or with your existing users that told you this was the right time to, to try and tackle this problem? With the explosion of really great subscription products like Netflix, like other products in the market are truly experimenting right now. I mean, I think that's mm -hmm. something that we really felt like if we could do it all over again on maybe Wapen, maybe that's something we would do as well. And those signals really come from great storytelling usually deserves to be paid. And I think it can come from many different ways, but I think that's something that we consciously made a decision to go forward with. 
Do you think that that specifically trying to solve a, a business problem or fulfill a business need conflict with also trying to solve a, a customer need at the same time? It's extremely difficult, but I think there is an intersection in between delivering something of value and matching that with their willingness to pay for a product. It it can be difficult at times, but I think if you're making sure that you're not leaning too heavily into the business problem or leaning too heavily on the user problem, mm-hmm. I think finding that intersection is like a careful balance. And there are a lot of times you can lean from one side to the other, but I, either way, it's very detrimental long-term to the business. If you lean too much on trying to convert people without any you know, regard to the user problems people are facing. And ultimately, like delivering value is the long-term goal, right? I think the money is a transaction that determines, helps determine that value. But I think sitting in that intersection is really, really important. So you, you touched on leaning one one way or another, whether it's too hard mm-hmm. to to the business problem or too too much uh, focus on the customer problem. Did did you guys see any signals that you were maybe leaning one way or the other too too much when you went out of the gates initially? Yeah, and I think you know it's very easy to get caught up in what other companies are doing or what other companies who are focused on revenue are doing. It can get pretty easy, but I think. What was important for us before we we kind of started with the revenue product and then we kind of circled back and you know try to really understand like why users are hiring or using our product to do something in their life and like what 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 is that and we really wanted to understand that fundamentally so we could kind of ingrain that in everything we do um, and all the business problems we were trying to tackle. Because I think without that, it's really hard to actually solve the business problems. Like if you don't have that key understanding of what humans want from your product or like why they're even using it, it's really hard to force solutions that come externally. That's what I've found anyways. I mean, you can see many different subscription products, many, there's many different virtual currency products and it's, you know, it's very easy for you to kind of try to shove those solutions into a product that doesn't really make sense. So I think really understanding your users, really understanding the problem you're in and why they're using is really important to creating the solution that really makes sense for what you're doing and why you exist. So when you started to to focus up on this space and, and start framing the product you were going to build, how much did you do to learn about how other companies were, were trying to t- tackle similar problems? How did you like go out and, and get that information? It's funny because I come from like a more growth background and very focused on like retention and onboarding and those kinds of things. So there's a lot of information about MAU growth and all that stuff. Um, but there's not a lot of people talking about money, surprisingly. Um, so it, it was really difficult to find those resources. There's no like growth hacking for money. It's just, <laughs> and that's what I've kind of found too, that like some products really who were able to understand why people were using it and kind of intersect that with like a revenue model that made sense for them really was things that um, inspired. So, you know, I spent a lot of time in gaming apps and subscription apps and entertainment apps. And mm-hmm. um, and we learned a lot of, of stuff from them because, you know, from these industries, like a lot of this is, you know, old news, you know, like having a paid model in gaming is not 
something that people even question and they've built bibles Mm -hmm. on how to do this kind of thing coming from a consumer lens yeah and so you know it's everything from like using a lot of different products i mean i've questioned this is like have they built an app for pms to hold all of their ios screenshot videos because i have literally (laughs) 200 on my phone um and yeah like i there's a few things that i looked into for pricing i mean there's um, a book called like Monetizing Innovation, How Smart Companies Design a Product Around Price. Um, and they go through like Uber and they go through different companies and how they fit different pricing models. Because um, mm-hmm. I think that was an area that was a bit unknown to me. And I know there's companies like Pricing Intelligently. That's like some of their resources I use to kind of frame that aspect. But how we did it was all kind of understanding our user base, kind of looking at how other companies have done it, but it's hard to really directly borrow. I think there's a there's a fair amount of, of thinking around how to validate uh, products in this industry, but not, not a lot of talk or, or thinking that I've seen certainly around how to explore and validate actual uh, different revenue models within a product. Yeah. How did you how did you start to solve this problem and, and explore those different ways? Again, if there was kind of that Venn diagram, we really wanted to explore the two sides of that. So Mm -hmm. we wanted to explore value first. So again, this is your basic kind of understanding of your user and your problem that you're tackling and the job to be done and why people are using it. So you need to really fundamentally know that really, really well, um, I would say. And then the other side of it is understanding kind of the willingness to pay for a product like yours. Um, So there are many ways you can do this. I mean, we did do many different surveys and kind of behavioral analysis to get to, you know, price sensitivity and what people were paying for in the market competitively. Um, We did diary studies to see how, you know, usage patterns kind of correlated to how people bought products. Um, So many different research tactics um, and also doing kind of, you know, in-depth interviews on not just kind of the journey of using um, a product, but kind of specific parts in the journey we call kind of like the customer purchasing journey. So like what happens when, you know, you use an app for a week and then you're asked to pay, like, do you, you know, use your thumbprint ID or do you have to, if you're maybe under 18, maybe you have to talk to your parents about mm-hmm. like, you know, can I buy this? And they're like, well, I've already bought you this. So what are you kind of competing with? And what are the normal purchasing habits for a product like this? Is it kind of impulsive? Is it calculated? Is it kind of the you know, you think about it for a while and then you're like, I'm going to do it. Or is it kind of like, whatever, this is kind of like a cup of coffee. So I don't care really. And so you have to really understand those nuances on how people pay and purchasing behaviors, I think. Um, And that's kind of the two sides that we try to really understand. Um, And for TAP, it it was kind of like, you know, it's entertainment. So, and it was like bite-sized entertainment. Mm -hmm. So it's not like, we're not comparing ourselves to a Netflix subscription. We are, you know, a couple, it's like fun. It's like interactive. It's, you know, something that people will spend time on, but um, it's more like a luxurious Starbucks coffee. So that's what people would use. And you kind of take um, account on what people say about buying. So 
buying things in their life. So, so it sounds like you did a, a fair amount of ethnography around the revenue model here. Mm-hmm. Did you actually ever prototype out um, different different payment math or revenue models in the app or within the product, or did you just kind of jump into make a decision and, and put something in in production? So, at Wattpad, we do try to do like that deep understanding, but we also do really want to validate through prototypes. So it's difficult to do this in like any of the prototyping tools you have. I mean, we've shown people Envision and Principle and all those prototypes, but it's, it's not like they're going to, I'm like, are, are you going to take out your credit card now? Like you can't really test that without really (laughs) building it and people can you know lie to you and say like yeah of course i'll buy it and you know so you really do have to build some sort of mvp prototype to actually see if people are going to buy it because that's that's like the one thing that's gonna tell you whether it's a valid revenue model or not um and so that was for us very early on once we kind of understood around the path of where we wanted to go. So whether it was like, do we want to have a subscription product? Do we want to test directly asking people to pay? Do we want to test, you know, virtual economy or currency? We kind of did that in the prototyping phase, like getting people's initial thoughts on this product and how it mapped to those different revenue models. And then eventually we came to a quick decision like, okay, like in order to test one of these things, we need to really get to build something um, and put it out into market so that we could get those baselines to see if people are actually buying it. But I think you need to do both the qualitative and quantitative in order to um, uh, get that answer. So before actually having a, a product in market, how much confidence did you need to have in, in a, a revenue model and its viability before saying, okay, you know, we've, we've done our due diligence here. Let's actually build something. Um, you know, how, how many constraints do you think you, you were under before, before you've just sort of pulled the trigger on, on an actual product? I think with, um, tap, because we were so early, um, you know, even though I've talked about a lot of different, you know, discovery and, research methods, it was really easy for us to kind of come to that decision within like a couple weeks. It wasn't, it wasn't long because we understood that like in order to really validate this, like it has to be somewhat in market at least. Um, And what we did was we actually built that kind of MVP prototype in market. And we also, after it was market, did extra (laughs) you know, ethnography ethnography and diary studies to understand like, okay, like now that it's market and now that they can actually, you know, link their accounts or, you know, open up, use their credit cards, like what are they actually doing there? And so after doing, after doing this kind of validation work around, around the app itself and, and then how the revenue model fits in there, were there any, uh, any learnings that you got that, that fundamentally changed your direction or your approach or did it all kind of work to validate your initial assumptions? When you're testing different revenue models, you can kind of still get caught up in, you know, feature sets or kind of paying for specific things rather than understanding like that human 
reason why um, people are purchasing. So I think with storytelling, you know, a lot of us see it as like units, like books, or you're buying a movie, but really what you're buying is like this emotional moment or you're kind of living vicariously through someone else's life. And you really need to understand that and kind of figure out when those moments are appropriate to kind of ask people to buy things <laughs> um, because it's not um, it's not just about like, oh, we if we add this feature, people will buy this. It's really about like really understanding what is it about your product that gives value. And mm-hmm. I think really focusing on the emotional values of storytelling for us was a big part of how we kind of ended up deciding on what revenue model made sense for us and what made sense long term as well and i i think it's it's a difficult thing i mean this is a very user focused lens but there's also kind of the vision of where your company is going to go the strategy of where your company is going to go and what makes sense long term it's not a trivial decision i mean i think it's easy to prototype and test different things but ultimately when you decide like this is the thing it has to align in you know how your, your product, your users, your the business side, business potential, and as well as like your long-term vision of what you want your product to be. In, in terms of actually implementing this or, or starting to plan out how, how you build this out, um, what, what team members need to be involved in this? Because this a, a, a implementing a revenue model, whether it be a subscription service or, or any different type, kind of goes beyond product and development. Uh, did you need to loop in finance or success in terms of how they deal with the financial aspect of a customer's account? Yeah. The way we're structured at Wattpad is that we're structured in these kind of multifunctional squads. Mm-hmm. And that has a dedicated data person, marketing person, content person, support person, um, and design and dev and so it's very like multifunctional cross-functional across the company um and so definitely involving finance and data is definitely something that isn't pretty familiar well data for sure but finance some like if you're working on revenue process 100 percent involving finance is one of the things that we did early on i think it's hard for finance to um be involved just yet because you know you haven't launched yet. I think it's you can kind of model and and I, of course I had to do quite a few like models of what this could look like. Um, but it's hard to say until you actually launch something. So um, I think keeping them from like a consulting point of view when you're first launching is good. And um, as you start to see people buying things and mm-hmm. things in the door, um, that's when we more actively involve them. But definitely there is active involvement from product marketing and marketing to you know, get users in the door and make sure that they're experiencing this. Um, we also are a storytelling company, so there's a heavy involvement from content. And I think that was probably the most important one for us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're only, you know, you can, I say this analogy all the time, like we're kind of running this bakery and yes, I'm changing on how people can buy the cupcakes in the bakery. Like I'm introducing all these payment methods, but the cupcake has to be good and the cupcake (laughs) has to make sense for the price. And so that's 
what I think about. So like the con- working with content really strategically on what stories you know we want to feature and what story working with creators and making sure that they're aligned and supported. So those were the big pieces for us. Deciding to to actually undertake this project till the time that that you actually rolled out that that first kind of uh, you know V one or, or prototype to actually you know get something out there. What was your actual timeline to to build and launch this? Yeah, I think it it was different in many different cases. I mean, um, in the first um, launch of Tap, it was done in very quick, like two month timeline. So it was very, very quick. When we started to examine other business models, we um, it took like around a month as well, um, just because we were working pretty quickly to get something out into market. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, and again, timelines is not the important thing here. It was more of us getting this out into market and making sure that we had all the components that would make sense for a great experience. And, you know, there's always going to be trade-offs on getting something to market versus like having a very complete product. Um, And we didn't really set like a launch date necessarily. It was kind of like, these are all the components that we believe will be in a great experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's how we kind of, and it just ended up working out in like a month's timeline. So, so you've touched on this as we've been going through the conversation. It sounds like the, the, the first model that you rolled out was a, a subscription, a subscription kind of revenue model. Can you just give us a bit more detail about how that, that comes to life in the user's experience? Yeah. Um, so um, the first model we experimented with was a subscription model. So um, we have three different subscriptions. So we have a weekly, monthly, and yearly subscription, um, all having the same amount of features. We kind of looked at the things that added value to a user's kind of experience, such as like interactivity and um, story in, in particular. So access to different types of stories. So we kind of built it around those types of things and like unlimited reading as well. Um, So we looked at, you know, one of the, you know, emotional values is for people is kind of binging and getting to the ending of a story is really, really important for our users. There was things we kind of borrowed from gaming. There was things we borrowed from other products in which we figured out, okay, like how do we um, monetize at the right moment or the right, you know, cliffhanger moment to keep people wanting to read. Um, So maybe it's after chapter six, they are very, very invested. And that's when um, we can kind of ask them for a subscription if they want to continue reading for longer. Um, We also played with a lot of different features kind of came out of subscription, like really understanding the value of interactivity and story, like choose your own ending was something that our market was um, seeing a lot of traction in and we were seeing if that could work in the same universe as mobile app narratives. So that was something that also came out. Um, so they have access to all these things and we really focused on that. So that's our subscription product. And um, right now we're working on kind of um, a variation where we 
introduce virtual economy and currency as like just like a completely different way um, based on our learnings on how people are willing to pay and the type of product this is. So, yeah. Just as a really quick follow up on that, you mentioned a few interesting uh, kind of trigger points within the the usage of the app itself that were like a really good hook for introducing that 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 business side of the app into the into the user experience. Is that something you expected, or is that just something you kind of discovered once people started using the app? It was something that we discovered, and we kind of didn't fully understand why until we really dug into it a little bit more about what people were really buying. And Mm -hmm. I think initially you're like, oh, they're buying more chapters or they're buying more parts or episodes and that's what they're buying. But it's ultimately like getting to that end of a story is so important to people. And knowing that was something that really drove a lot of like ideas and um, iterations to our subscription product. How do you you keep iterating on a product like this how do you how do you manage changes um when the experience is that centered around sort of a narrative driven experience like that we're you know we're still really early in our lifetime of being an app and so we're consistently exploring like was that the right decision to make to go subscription right off the bat does it really make sense with how the product is evolving and where we want to go. So um, you, you, we've made a lot of iterations to our subscription product. And, you know, some of these things are done in, you know, A-B tests. Some of these things are done very um, specifically with like a go-to-market plan. But it really just depends on what you're trying to learn and what you're trying to understand in each specific instance. And so when we were doing more research on kind of willingness to pay and, you know, people are like, it's like a luxurious cup of coffee. And we were starting to question, okay, like, does subscription make sense? Does that really align with um, what people are saying and where we want to go as a company? So what was that gap that you were you were seeing there that, that was making you kind of question whether subscription was the right the right approach for this? And I think this is different from every type of user. So I think one of the things we kind of learned is like there are many different types of, um, just like how there are different kind of, I don't know, whether you're a persona person, whether your job's to be done, there are different people who have different willingness to pay for different products. And mm-hmm. um, in gaming, it's really, really well understood. Like you have your whales who spend like a thousand plus on games and there are your minnows and there are your free users and really accommodating for all of those different types of users and understanding their payment methods and is something that we didn't really have before. We just thought like, yeah, everyone will want to subscribe to something. Like everyone will want to be a subscriber. But I think, you know, there are people who are willing to pay different um, amounts and they'll probably be a majority of your user base. So that's why, you know, in subscription, there's a lot of tiering as well. Um, So there's different ways of addressing that, um, whether it's through tiering your subscription product, whether it's moving to a completely different one, but that's something we really wanted to examine as well. You you just mentioned the uh, 
the personas, the revenue personas that are used in gaming. Is that something that you're building out for your team uh, or for your product? And, and is that different from your actual, whether it's personas or jobs to be done for, for the actual like functional product itself? Do you have like a revenue set and then a, and then a product set or are they one and the same? It was kind of interesting because there's many different angles you can take. I mean, at Wapab, we're very jobs be done. So we had that already. Mm-hmm. And then from there, we had to kind of be like, okay, if you are this job to be done, we call, we have one of them called the tiny binger. Um, it's like, okay, um, how much of that, <laughs> um, the tiny binger, um, how much of that job to be done is this user cluster that has a higher willingness to pay? And how much of them is this lower willingness to pay user cluster. So we did some mm. kind of data analysis to kind of understand that. You know, sometimes people can be using your product a lot and not have a high willingness to pay. <laughs> I One thing, or some people use your product not at all and still are paying your, for your product. So sometimes those things don't match up, but the motivation is the same. So we do have a lot of different we had built out these like different user clusters intersecting that with the jobs to be done as well. So yeah, it gets confusing to have so many little groups, but it's important to understand when you're building revenue products um, as a whole to understand like those different segments. Do you use that to focus in on, on certain sub segments of your jobs to be done or, or is it just kind of, do you try and appease all of your segments in different ways with with different takes on on your revenue model it's being aware of everything when you're you're usually building for a very specific user group or user um, but ultimately when you're making a decision from like an entire revenue model standpoint you have to make sure like as a whole like who are you losing fundamentally and who are you actually supporting and understanding those trade-offs was kind of the most important thing. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think so you, you're kind of at it, like, if you're laser focused on one type of experiment, like, yes, sometimes you're focused on one cluster and sometimes you're kind of, if you're making like a big decision, you're kind of like taking like five steps back and being like, okay, who's actually paying for a product and what are the user, what, what is that trade off between like, you know, the, the personas that will be happy and who won't be. So, mm-hmm. How did you actually approach rolling this out for customers? Did you market this release or, or communicate it in advance or, or was it almost like a bit of a stealth launch? For us, it was more of a stealth launch. I think, I mean, it really depends on where you are in your life cycle. I mean, if you really have a large dedicated user base and you've, you know, done it for a long, long time, like I, I think people will notice you can't really get away with doing it stealth stealthily Mm -hmm. um but um we kind of approached this to see um you know we wanted to keep our old users kind of happy and making sure that we were doing this carefully so we primarily did it with new users um it was easier for us because we have new users coming to the product all the time because it's generally a new concept anyways people don't really have preconceived notions on like what type of revenue models this product should have. So um, it was more of a stealth launch. How do you approach marketing this? You you mentioned earlier that you worked pretty closely with product marketing and and, and with the content team um, in bringing this to market. 
how do you approach this? Um, because, you know, maybe revenue models in a product isn't something that necessarily gets people excited. Uh, like, hey, there's new ways for you to give us money. Um, yeah. So, so how do you actually like uh, market this to customers in a way that, that is, a, you know, underlies the value that they get from it? Yeah. And I think that's where I think a lot of our marketing didn't speak to the revenue product. I think we were very specific in product, kind of how we wanted to demonstrate that value and used a product marketing lens there. But when it come to, came to our marketing, we actually wanted to keep the marketing the same. We just wanted you know, to make sure that we had customers coming into this experience um, so that we could get like kind of, you know, given the same type of user coming into our product, how does the purchasing behavior change with when once they get in the product so um it was i think once you're more committed later down the line you can kind of experiment with um discounting or merchandising or like that kind of thing but mm-hmm. people you know uh, my I, i'm sure any marketing person people aren't sold by like come use our subscription product like i don't think that's what people gets people excited yeah about interactive storytelling it's literally the interactive storytelling piece so um that's kind of what we chose consciously to do you said you focus more on on demonstrating the value inside the product what, yeah. what did that look like so what, what are some examples of the of the tactics or the approach there um, some of the things we did was, um, you know, actively understanding like, um, you know, strategic use of copy. I know that's not talked about enough and often forgotten by, you know, design and product managers, but it's really, really important on how people read your value and interpret your value. So that was something we worked really um, a long time on and understanding like what are the first types of stories people should be exposed to. Um, and when and understanding from like a marketing appeal and a market standpoint, like what are the stories that are really going to, you know, stand out to people and um, appeal to our brand and what people we want to be recognized for. Um, it's kind of a very similar strategy to how, you know, Netflix was like, you know, their first Netflix was original was House of Cards. So there's that there's there's that brand perception about Netflix already because of that content piece and how they marketed it as well. So that's kind of how the approaches we took. And what was that initial customer reaction to to having uh, revenue streams or a business model sort of inserted into what is otherwise a free to use product? You know, you have like a mixed. I think there are people who really who understand and really love the product are feel, you know, this is worth it. And I think if you're not getting that reaction, there probably is something wrong with the value that you're serving. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are users who will want the internet to be free. So I think there, that's kind of the con. Like there are many different, you know, and we also have like a product for that, which is Wattpad as well. So mm-hmm. um, I think, you know, you have to accept that there are people who are freegans, I guess, and want to, um, don't want to pay for things, no matter how much they like them. So um, I think it's a bit of acceptance that there will be those two types of users and really focus on your customers who really love your product and want to come back and support it and want to keep buying. 
when you rolled this out, did you have did you have some expectation for for what the for how it would perform? Um, did you have revenue expectations? Did you have uh, some sort of goals or KPIs set for this? And then how did the how did the actual real world usage <laughs> compare to your expectations? So when we were kind of experimenting with new models, I think we we definitely had. You know, we had done some modeling, but, you know, when you do modeling, you're doing modeling based on kind of some benchmark industry expectations that don't really match your product. So it's it's hard to really put a goal before you actually launch. And so that was something we were really cognizant about. It's like we want to see this in market and then see what comes out of that. Um, and, you know, and to be honest, like, I think when you're launching any early product, you're kind of expecting a, a little bit like you're going to be failing and learning a lot um, and quickly. And so it's funny because at after post-launch, like we didn't really expect to, you know, ex- like our expectations were lower. Um, we were excited and we knew this was the right thing to do, but we mm-hmm. knew this was an early prototype. Like this was not the end and this is not the end product that I think we'd expect. So I think that was one of the things is like when we launched, like we actually saw pretty good reception from our users, like really good, you know, better retention rates on some of these things. So we were really kind of surprised and as well as like happy with the results. And I think, you know, after you kind of launch and get that initial set of metrics and whatever you're using, um, whether it's like conversion or um, average revenue per user or average revenue per daily active user, that kind of thing, you kind of start to then be like, okay, what are the benchmarks that we could probably realistically set against these kinds of different metrics? Um, and that's when we kind of started to move against those. Did you discover that there was a like a specific type of user who was you know, really engaged with the business model or was it kind of just equally adopted across the the user base of TAP? We definitely found that um, amongst our different kind of jobs to be done, like I think our users who were, who actively had the problem of, you know, needing to be like satisfied emotionally very quickly, um, whether and when they need like a break from kind of their day to day were um, and we are, we've kind of like mapped out our jobs to be done in our product. And we understood like those are the users who are kind of, you know, wanting more. They wanted more from the product, right? And your initial set of users who are going to be buying are going to be your power users. They are going to be the users who have a certain, the, the product really solves a really core need and problem for them. So we did that, see that. So we've touched on this a couple times throughout the conversation today around how do you measure success in in putting revenue models into your product? You, you've talked about, you know, the, do customers find value enough to to, to pay? Mm-hmm. Um, but a, a, as the product has matured and you've kind of gone through iterations around this, how are you measuring success on this? What are like what kind of KPIs do you do you look at um, to you know, what are the baseline KPIs that you're usually using to kind of measure the financial health of your uh, of your product? So, I mean, there are many different KPIs, um, and I think it just I think it's balancing, you know, the business KPIs with the 
user KPIs. Um, so, you know, there are metrics like, you know, you can really focus on conversion, but that's just one piece of the funnel. I think anyone who's done any sort of, you know, growth in from the user perspective knows that like retention is king. You you need to understand like, oh, are people buying this once or is this something that people actually want to continually pay for for the long term? And so that that is an important metric, whether in your subscription or whether you're, you know, selling individual SKUs or items, like you need to know like, are people coming back and are are they bringing on other users and that kind of thing. So I would say like, yes, look at conversion, but also look at the revenue retention, whatever it may be, your business model may be. On the other side, you still have to keep, make sure that you're not dropping any user, key user metrics, like users coming back and reading or coming back to your app. Like you need to make sure that those things are balanced. Um, So you need to kind of set these, kind of opposing you need to be keeping track of both kpis on both ends to make sure that you've really built a successful product that is valuable but people are also willing to continuously pay for so as this has been a market what what data or or usage patterns have you discovered that that really informed how you would improve the product and and i guess additionally what what patterns would have signaled that it you know, it wasn't working or that you needed to radically change how you had approached this? You know, was there, was there a kill switch built in? What if it, what if it didn't work out? I think we, we use those two sides, we use those business metrics and those users metrics to kind of understand both sides. And if we saw, you know, one dramatically going up and one dramatically going down, like that was something that really gave us signal, okay, like, is there something we did that, uh, in this latest iteration that kind of leaned too heavily on one side, especially for like subscription or once something, someone has bought something, you know, you can't really take that away from them. It's not like, uh, oh, we're discontinuing this feature. It's like, you yeah. kind of already bought it. So um, it's really hard to, it's one of those things you can't really go back from, but um, you know, you're actively really monitoring all of those metrics on a daily basis to make sure that it is healthy. And if there needs to be changes or there are bugs, it's very easy to see like from your metrics um, if something is not working. Awesome. So this has been really interesting kind of talking through how you, you know, initially understood the problem, how you validated it out, how you validated out different approaches to, to introducing revenue models into TAP, how you built that and, and, and released it. Uh, just to kind of wrap up the conversation with a bit of a, a, a forward-looking converse or a forward-looking question, you know, how how do you think about scaling revenue models within within a consumer product like yours? Um, you know, you, you've touched on on maybe different ways you've been iterating on your subscription model. How much are you looking to introduce other revenue streams? Um, how do you know when like, is there ever a point where you've you've got enough revenue per user? Um, you know, like, what are the? How do you think about continuing to evolve this as the product grows and the and the user base grows? So we're kind of going through that right now and figuring out. Okay, you know, we've been around for a year. We've 
spent most of the year trying to get figure out product market fit. And now that we've kind of figured out there are there is like a dedicated you know user base who loves our product and is willing to pay, it's kind of more looking forward into our vision and what we want this product to be long term and understanding that for whatever product you're in. So whether you know you want to be a global entertainment company or whether you want to be the platform for interactive storytelling, what revenue model will make sense in that future vision? And it's really, again, not really about making as much money as possible. It's really like if there are current problems with the current revenue model that you have that users are having and it really is not matching that intersection between value and willingness to pay then it is time to look into other things and i think that's where i think we definitely have seen um, really great response from our core subscribers but we definitely want this to be um, a really big platform we have a big vision ahead of us and we want to make sure that as many people as possible is experiencing interactive storytelling so how do we do that it definitely does scale with like the number of users you have Um, and so figuring out what business model really fits that vision for your product that's awesome uh well why don't we wrap it up there uh, a big thank you to Emily for joining us today to talk about the uh, revenue models in TAP. And a big thank you to everybody out there who's listening. Uh, if you're interested in trying out TAP for yourself, you can learn more at taptaptap.co or download it from Google Play or the Apple App Store. If you enjoyed this episode of Framework, it helps a lot if you leave a review or rating on iTunes or recommend this podcast to a friend. If you'd like to hear someone else's product story on Framework or to tell your own, we'd love to hear from you, and our contact details are on the website. We'll see you next time.